Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Well, it is my pleasure to um, bring Hannah and then Eric onto the stage today to speak to us. Um, they're going to be talking to us about justice today. Just such a privilege to have so many speakers within our congregation who um, know and love God and are really good at sharing the word with us. So I'm extremely grateful. Can I just pray for both you guys? I'll pray for Eric with a long arm and, <laughs> and Hannah over here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for both Hannah and Eric. We thank you for the blessing they are in so many ways to us as a church here. And Lord, I ask that you open our ears to hear what you want to say to each one of us today through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Misty. Good morning. You're all looking and sounding in brilliant voice this morning. And it, um, it's my first time doing the triple whammy preach of woking and then Guildford morning service and then Guildford evening service. And so we've just got here from woking and it's a lot of fun. It's a bit like doing a marathon, except for you can't justify all the car bloating in quite the same way. Um, so good morning. And it's so lovely to be with you guys. If you've got your Bible, please do open it at Isaiah chapter 58. This morning, um, as Misty said, we are going to be carrying on our Dirty Glory series. And um, if you've been here over the past few months, you'll know that we've been working through this brilliant book by Pete, which is a real window into some of the core values of who we are as a church, who we are as the 24-7 prayer movement. And so far, we've looked at the themes of mission, prayer, and presence. And this morning, we're going to be looking at justice. So starting at Isaiah 58 and verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Let's pray together for a moment. Holy Spirit, we want to welcome you this morning. God, we long to hear from your word. We long to know what you have to say to us. And Lord, I pray that as we open your word together this morning, we might not just hear what you have to say, but that we might begin to live lives that are different because of it. We welcome you to change our hearts this morning. Please, would you speak to us? Amen. So this morning, we're looking at justice and this is one of the major themes of the Bible, and we can't possibly do it justice, you'll have to excuse the pun, in half an hour, but we're going to do a really broad biblical overview of why theologically we as a church are so concerned with the topic of justice, 
And then the wonderful Eric Jesperson is going to come and share a little bit more of what this looks like for us in practice and what we as a church um, are involved in. And justice is one of the major themes of scripture. It, it dominates and interrupts the biblical narrative at every turn. It is undeniably and all-consumably visible from Genesis to Revelation. In the Isaiah passage that we started with, one of God's great manifestos of his desire in the Bible, we see this radical Godhead who does not desire worship for himself while humans are struggling oppressed or hungry. He is a God who is so deeply, so uniquely connected to mankind, to our hunger, our needs, our flourishing and our happiness, that God makes fighting injustice and oppression a prerequisite to worship. That's pretty radical. And for those of us who've been around church for a while, this may seem obvious right, that God is a God of justice, or something that we take for granted even. But theologians have actually described this attribute of God's character as scandalous justice. Why? Well, if you look throughout history at virtually any other ancient gods, and we'll see some pictures of some of them behind me, they're always associated with the powerful and the elite. Kings, warriors, champions, emperors, military leaders. There was the God of thunder, the God of war, the God of beauty, gods of kings and empires. And then we have the God of the oppressed. Next slide. This concept of God is completely unique and scandalous in its vulnerability and compassion. But the Bible tells us that the scandalous God of Israel identifies with the stranger, right? The widow, the alien, the oppressed. In fact, God even introduces himself like this. How do you tend to introduce yourself? You know, when you're at a dinner party and you're doing your little patter, meeting somebody for the first time, what's your go-to introduction? Or like when Misty or Bill kind of makes you turn to someone around, and you always feel a bit awkward as to who am I going to talk to. What's your go-to introduction? See, I think normally what we do is we tend to introduce ourselves in a way that highlights who we are, but also what we do. Right? We tend to introduce ourselves with our primary occupation or what we spend most of our time in public life doing. So I'm Hannah and I work for 24-7 prayer. In Psalm 68, verse 4 to 5, God is introduced like this. Father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Our title defines our action. It highlights what we're doing. And therefore, justice is deeply ingrained in both the character of God and his action in the world. It's in his introduction. And therefore, as his followers, we're called to imitate him. And Christians have been doing this for thousands of years, 
baffling the empires and establishments of the day. Church history is filled with remarkable accounts of Christians sharing their homes or their meals with those on the margins. Adopting unwanted children has been something in our Christian heritage since AD 130. Sharing our worldly needs in community, even moving into prisons to be with persecuted brothers in need. This is our heritage quietly and radically overturning and unsettling the value systems of the day. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And from the whole of church history, Christians have been criticized and mocked in turn by satirists and emperors for their scandalously sacrificial lifestyles. Because you see, if your God is Thor or Zeus or Mars then being God-like is rising to the top and not letting anyone stand in your way, right? But if your God is father to the fatherless and defender of the widow, then being godly looks like selling your possessions, adopting children, moving into prisons. Our God looks so radically different, therefore we must look so radically different as his followers, This characteristic of God completely readjusts the way in which his followers ought to prioritize their lives, their value systems. And we see this incarnate in Jesus in the most beautiful ways. At the very beginning of his ministry, the Gospel of Luke describes Jesus standing up in his hometown synagogue. Jesus is about to preach his first ever sermon of his public life. This is a huge moment. And it's obviously this window into the deepest priorities of his soul. What's the first thing that Jesus is going to publicly preach in his ministry? And the Bible passage he chooses that day were these words of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after reading this passage, Jesus, the greatest communicator to ever walk on this planet, preaches a startling eight-word sermon. Today, This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. (laughs) Silence in the building. Today, this has been fulfilled. Some of us might wish a few more of our sermons were only eight words long. (laughs) Only Jesus could really get away with that. This is the window into Jesus' deepest priorities. Here is a man who knows beyond any shadow of doubt that his life has a very specific purpose for the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. See, the call to justice and mercy is the inevitable consequence of a call to walk in the footsteps of this man, Jesus. Pete says in Dirty Glory, there is no other way to be a Christian. It is biblically, undeniably, and absolutely true that all Christians are called to be messengers of good news to the poor. Flicking forward to later in Jesus' ministry, 
<clears throat> we get this major moment in the biblical narrative. We see Jesus possibly for the first time angry, almost at a point of rage when he comes face to face with one of the, the most entrenched systems of oppression of his day. Luke chapter 19, I apologize, the reference is wrong there, but it is Luke 19 and verse 44. We read this, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this was a critical moment. Jesus was standing up to one of the, the vilest but most entrenched systems of injustice of his day, right at the heart of the Jewish system of worship, in the middle of the temple courts. And as we read this story and as we look into it, I want you to just think, what are the deeply entrenched systems of injustice in our day? What's our modern day equivalent? What are some of the ways that we see in society people being oppressed, people not being given access to what they need? Now, sometimes this moment, this standoff between Jesus and these temple traders, sometimes it's caricatured as if Jesus is simply annoyed with some dodgy market traders who, you know, they're fleecing a few gullible tourists. The reality is far more serious. Jesus was actually indicting the entire temple bureaucracy for systemic corruption. We know this for sure because contemporary archaeologists have actually discovered coins that were minted by the temple at the time of Jesus, which proves that its authorities had effectively created their own currency for exclusive use within the temple. How many of you know that when you create your own currency, you can charge literally whatever you want for it? And so people were showing up at the temple wanting to pray, and they needed to buy sacrifices. They needed to buy doves and all sorts of animals, but they couldn't use their normal money. They had to first change it. And they were charged literally whatever the temple authorities decided they wanted to make that day. As a man whose life mission was a call to the oppressed, you can just imagine the look on Jesus' face as he steps into this environment and physically confronts these market traders. How dare you oppress these people this way? How dare you turn a house of prayer into a den of robbers? And this particular phrase, it was loaded with prophetic significance. I mean, I, t I read that and I just think den of robbers is a clever way of saying you're stealing from people. But Jesus actually chose that phrase from the book of Jeremiah. And in its original context, which the authorities would have known, Jeremiah stood at the gates of the previous temple. So Solomon's temple, which stood before this current temple. And he stood there and he said, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? See, in Jeremiah's context, he was condemning the temple of the day for tolerating and even perpetuating injustice against aliens, orphans, widows, and the innocent. 
And sure enough, the unthinkable happened, and that temple was destroyed. So by using this particular phrase from Jeremiah, Jesus was effectively announcing the imminent destruction of a structure that stood at the heart of Jewish faith and identity. This moment was subversive and politically dangerous. It's no wonder we're told that the chief priests and the scribes, when they heard this, they began seeking how to destroy him. See, the truth is, is that injustice and worship can never go hand in hand. God cares too much about people, about the marginalized, about the hungry. A house of prayer, a church built for worship, simply cannot be pleasing to God if it tolerates or perpetuates injustice against people. I think sometimes churches have created a kind of false dichotomy between emphasizing social justice and emphasizing evangelism. But the biblical truth is that we have to have both. One cannot function fully without the other. So as followers of Jesus, how can we outwork some of this? I think that justice, sacrificial, loving justice, actually needs to become a part of our spiritual discipline. That as focused as I am on growing in knowledge of God and encounter with him, I must also focus on the outworking of his kingdom, bringing justice to the world around me. And this can be in the big scale things like campaigning and volunteering or starting charities and organizations. These things are all brilliant ways to outwork our passion for justice. And I know so many of you here are involved in loads of incredible and big scale things, tackling justice at those levels. But you know, even deeper than that, I think if I'm to truly embrace justice as part of my spiritual discipline, then I think that means allowing God's justice and God's heart for the oppressed to truly begin to change and break my heart, right? It needs to be a a heart change. This justice needs to become a choice which actually actively affects and interrupts my lifestyle, Something which will cause me to be late for a meeting, maybe, because I've stopped to help someone or talk to someone. Something which will cause me to change my finances, yes, but also the people on my dinner party guest list. Something which will interrupt and disturb my regularly scheduled program. And there's loads of incredible programs and initiatives that we're involved in as a church. I'm sure Eric will touch on some of those in a moment. And these are beautiful ways to outwork our heart for justice. But if, if this is to truly be a lifestyle, to be worship, I think we need to look even deeper, right, than just volunteering every so often with a program. Because the point is that it isn't about programs, it's about people. It's not just about campaigning and fighting injustice on the macro level, it's also about stopping for the one, right? It's about kindness, about sharing food with people, about having people at our dinner table who might not have eaten much this week otherwise. It's weird, isn't it, that sometimes we kind of designate one hour of our week to, to serve at a program or a food bank, but then in our busyness walk past so many homeless or lonely people that would actually really like to talk to us, to tell us their story. 
to have someone listen to them. And this is how Jesus lived his life. He always stopped for the one, the blind person who called his name in the street, the disgraced woman going to collect water in the heat of the day. Jesus' heart for justice moves him to stop for people. He has compassion on them. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus looks on the crowds with compassion. And the word translated as compassion here is the Greek word splanksa, which isn't really found anywhere else before this point. Splanksa literally means like the guts and the vital organs, the, the seat of human emotion. You could almost paraphrase that verse. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was gutted, winded with grief. His insides were in turmoil. Jesus allows the suffering, the oppression of others to actually affect him at the core of his being, right? He suffers with others, and this comes to define his actions and his calendars. One of the ways that I think we can outwork this is that, we pray to see the other the way that Jesus did, that we might love them the way that he loves them. I love this quote. I'm going to share it with you. I think it should be the next slide, or maybe the next one. Yeah, here we go. Feeding the hungry is not a matter of the well-fed offering handouts and getting on with their private feasting. The vision is of everyone around a table, face to face. Even to imagine sitting together like that gently exposes injustice, exploitation, sexism, hard-heartedness, and the multiple ways of rejecting the appeal of the face of the other. Once we have started doing it in little ways, the implications for politics, economics, and church life never cease ramifying. Feeding the hungry is not a matter of offering handouts. It is a vision of everyone around a table. I love the idea that my dining table is just as important for the outworking of justice as all these incredible, massive programs. Because this feels very much like Jesus' strategy. Stop for the one. Eat with the one. See, it's not about people. Sorry, it is about people. It is about people. It's not about programs. Sometimes it's so easy to love all of humanity and so difficult to love one human being. Right, it's so easy to have this heart for injustice and, and this heart for people and this, you know, this love for humanity. And yet, how difficult it is when one person is in front of us to truly love that one person. To give up our dinner table for them, to give up our time for them. This call to, to radical, sacrificial sharing of our lives to love the other is not easy. It's deeply costly, but it is our mandate. N.T. Wright says, The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. When was the last time you experienced suffering love for someone? 
this call to justice is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. This is a, a deep, splanker thing in our guts. It's a suffering love. It's a love that will cost us and require more of us often than we want to give. One of my favorite lines in Dirty Glory comes in Kelly's story. And Kelly's part of the 24-7 prayer movement and was working with prostitutes and drug dealers out in Boys Town in Mexico. And she's out prayer walking the streets and a well-meaning drug dealer sees her, this all-American girl, wandering around in Boys Town and he pulls up in his blackened limousine and rolls down the window. And he leans out and says to her, don't you know what kind of place this is? And that kind of reminds me of the things that people used to say to Jesus, right? Don't you know what kind of people those are? Don't you know who you're having dinner with, Jesus? Don't you know that is a sketchy part of town? The good, reputable people don't go there. But those who are called to the oppressed, to the margins, they can't keep themselves away from there. And I just wonder as well whether often when Jesus is heading towards another sketchy part of town, whether it's even the disciples in his ear whispering, don't you know what kind of place this is? Don't you know what kind of people these are? And you know, the call to follow Jesus is still the call to the margins, to feed the hungry, to befriend the lonely, to stop for the one. And to tell us a bit more about what this call looks like here at Emmaus and on our doorstep, I'd love to invite Eric Jesperson. Can we welcome Eric? <laughs> Eric probably isn't allowed to say this about himself, but this man, his wife, their family, they just live this. They live this call to the oppressed, to the hungry, to the lonely. And so Eric is going to share with us now. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. What an incredible message. Thank you so much. Um, to be honest, I feel like Hannah's really captured the heart of that. And I, I did want to talk sort of practically. I was asked to come and just talk about how we apply this a little bit. And, um, but, but very much in tune with what Hannah was sharing, um, I didn't want to talk about, like, here's some programs we do. I think that was a real temptation uh, for me to come and say, here's five opportunities for you to go and do this in the life of the church. And we will, we will communicate that in time. But the sense was that God really doesn't want us to just put on a cap that says social justice uh, for an hour a week, and then we kind of tick a box and we feel better about that. Or uh, I love that that quote uh, about you know sort of uh, handing out food you know for an hour a week and then getting on with our feasting. You know that that uh, this isn't what this is about. But God's heart for us is to really have a sense of Him giving Him permission to break our hearts with the things that break his, and to live that out. A guy I know called Carl Medeiros, who's an American Christian, does a lot of work in the Middle East, went into Baghdad um, shortly after the Iraq war. And uh, he, what he did is he went to the local Muslim leaders, the mullahs there, and he said to them, which sounds like quite a dangerous thing, but he went to them and he said, um, I'm here looking for Jesus. Could you tell me where I might find Jesus in your city? 
And, you know, they took the question really seriously, and all the leaders got together in a little huddle over here, and they, they had a very serious dialogue about this. Where, where would Jesus be? And then they came over to them, uh, to Carl, and they said, we know where Jesus would be. Jesus is down the road in the orphanage. He's in the hospital. He's with the children who have lost their parents in this war. He's, he's with those who have been wounded and marginalized. They understood where Jesus would be. And I, I just think that's God's heart. In my experience, that's what we've discovered is that's where we find Jesus. And, uh, and so, in a very simple way, I think we just ask God, you know, where are you? Jesus, where are you? And when we go looking for Jesus, we tend to find him having dinner with those on the margins, those who are irreputable, those who, who have been pushed aside, those who don't belong. Social justice and compassion is in no way a department on the margins of this church. Like, oh yeah, there's some people in our church that do that over there. You know, ring this extension and you'll find the people who do that. It's, it's the culture of Emmaus. It's a culture of what we belong to. One of my absolute highlights in going to the gathering conference uh, the week before last was what was celebrated. You can always tell what's in the heart of a movement of people by what they celebrate. And you know, nobody was there celebrating, oh, you know, there's this great big church over there and they've got so many hundreds of people and uh, there's this great big group of people doing. No, what was celebrated time and time and time again was there's this love for the lost and the poor. There's these people doing stuff with prostitutes and drug addicts and homeless. Those were the stories that were celebrated. People who are doing the one-on-one, face-to-face things. People living sacrificially in some of the most deprived communities on the planet. That's what we celebrate. That's what we understand. And I just love that, that that's right at the heart. It's at the DNA of who we are as a people. And what happens when we do this, I think, is it attracts the favor of God. It honestly does. You know, we give without expecting in return from people, but what we receive is this incredible favor from God. Isaiah 58 that Hannah talked about says that when you do this, when you walk out and you express your sacrificial worship in this way, then your righteousness will shine like the dawn. In Luke 6, when Jesus starts to talk about uh, giving to to the least and, and those who can't give in return, he says, then your reward from heaven will be great. It's not that you do it for a reward, but it attracts this response from God because he's like, there's my people doing exactly what I love. You know, not just another program, not just the best worship services, not just the coolest things, but here is a people doing what I love. You know, where would we find Jesus in our day? And on a very, very practical level for us, I think the biggest obstacle to us living out this stuff, being where Jesus is, doing what Jesus would do, is that it is so very, very costly. It is really, really costly. 
And we can easily romanticize the stories of people out there, you know, doing amazing stuff in deprived neighborhoods, in, in, in rough parts of the world. You know, we hear that story of Karl Medeiros and we say, oh, that's really cool. I'd love to have been there doing that. Or, you know, I'd love to uh, be with, with the guys, um, you know, in the back alleys with the drug addicts and the prostitutes and that. But the reality is that is very, very costly. And we are taught, I think, um, to, to live in a, in, a, in a place of justice that always has an equal exchange for things. You see, the symbol of justice is a balanced scale, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a scale that, that, that is balanced on both sides. And, and in life, I think we live out this even unconsciously. We're looking for that balance. We're looking for that equal return. You go into a shop and you see a price on something and you think, yeah, that's about right. I'm willing to exchange this amount of money for that article. That seems like a fair deal. And so we, 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 we buy the item or we buy that meal or, um, you know, we, we ask a contractor for a quote to do some work for us. And we look at the job and we look at the quote and we go, yeah, that's about right. That's a balanced scale. I'll pay you to do that. And uh, we may do that looking for a job. We, we see they want us to do this task, and we look at what they're willing to pay us, and we go, yeah, that looks about right. I'm willing to, to do this job for that. That's an equal trade there. And so there's a sense of justice in it. And I think we do that even in relationships with people. We, we look for a balanced scale, an equal trade. I'll have that person over to dinner because I'll get something back for it. Maybe they'll get to invite me back or maybe just who they are and, you know, the, the enjoyment I'll get from their company. They're really fun to be around. They're charismatic or whatever. Yeah, I, that's a, this is a balanced scale. I'm getting something back. But the gospel is not about that. In fact, the gospel is a kind of reverse injustice because the gospel lavishly gives without expecting something back. Romans 5 talks about how someone might die, give their life for a good person. But Romans 5 says, God in Christ gave his life when we weren't good, we weren't even on friendly terms with God. In fact, we were in absolute rebellion and sinfulness, absolutely lost, totally unworthy of saving, and yet Jesus comes and gives his life for us. The most unequal, unjust transaction, and yet God does that. Tim Keller in, talks about the story of the prodigal, with the, the story in Luke 15 that we call the prodigal son, and he says it's actually a story of the prodigal God, the prodigal father. Because when the son comes back, having wasted everything and trashed his life, comes back with nothing to give, the father lavishes a response on him and gives him the ring of favor and the cloak and throws this ridiculous extravagant feast for him, welcomes him back in. And Tim Keller points out it's the father who's prodigal in that because prodigal means wasteful extravagance. And it's the father who does that to the son. And that is what it looks like. It's incredibly costly. And this is what can stop us, I think. Because 
what I've experienced is that people volunteer, they come in and they say, I want to do something. You know, they have this romanticized version. I'm going to minister to the poor. I'm going to do something for them. And they don't get anything back. They do it for a week or two, a month or two. And then they're like, man, those people aren't very grateful, are they? Or they don't behave very well. And, and they're offended that actually there wasn't some sort of trade-off. You know, that it didn't feel good enough. It didn't balance the scale for them. And so they stop volunteering. They walk away from it. They're thinking that this is going to be some sort of equal transaction. You know, I'm willing to give my time. I'm willing to open my home. I'm willing to do something. But I need to get some feel good back. I need to get some sort of trade here. The, the scale needs to be balanced here. And it, it's not like that. That's not how it is. And so it's a choice to be sacrificial, to give ourselves. It's always costly, spending ourselves on behalf of the poor, in the words of Isaiah 58, without expecting anything in return. It's not fair. It's sacrificial. It often makes no worldly sense. And yet the heart of the gospel and the nature of God is to give, give, give. I love the words of Jesus from Luke 6. In the message, it says, If you only love the lovable, do you expect a pat on the back? Run-of-the-mill sinners do that. If you only help those who help you, do you expect a medal? Garden-variety sinners do that. If you only give for what you hope to get out of it, do you think that's charity? The stingiest of pawnbrokers does that. I tell you, love your enemies. Help and give without expecting a return. You'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives towards us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. So as gospel people, we work out those implications in every detail of our lives. And as a response today, I think the best thing that we can do is to say, God, I give you permission to break my heart for the things that break yours. So that when I walk out of here and I go through my week, I'm open to those things that you stir me to do. That maybe when I walk past a homeless person or I, I see a single mother or I, you know, I come across a situation that needs a response, my, my heart is moved. That, that gut response happens. I'm moved with compassion. And so maybe we invite people for a meal who can't invite us back. Or maybe we'll cultivate a relationship with someone who can't return anything. Maybe we'll give generously to something that has no personal benefit to us. Maybe we'll take a job that isn't paid very well, but it's having an impact. Maybe we'll sacrifice in those ways. And you know, as we serve people and minister to people through, uh, through social action and justice. We're actually wanting to restore justice in their lives. We want to restore them to a place where they can make an equal trade, where they can learn to, to work and get a fair wage back, where they learn how to give back in relationships and not just receive, not be stuck in a kind of toxic charity or victim cycle. We, we're wanting to restore them to that place, but we start with this radical, almost reverse injustice, this generosity, this kingdom way. And so what I want to do now is, is just 
if you would join me praying that courageous prayer, that God would come and have permission to break our hearts with the things that break His. Would you allow us to do that? I wonder if you would stand with me, and I just want to invite Peter and the team to come and lead us in a song. And as we do this, this is just a really a, a prayer to pray this. And I say we'll talk about programs sometime, but I want to uh, just pray this brave prayer together. And as we um, sing this, uh, Misty's going to help just wrap this up, and, uh, and then we'll head out hopefully with a fresh courage, fresh heart for God. So God, would you come right now, today, and move by your Holy Spirit within us? Not just to uh, tick a box, or just tick some sort of religious box, but to really capture the very heart of God in this. The God who describes himself as father to the fatherless, defender to the widows. We give you permission today to break our hearts for the things that break yours, God. Come and do a work of your spirit right here, right now.